grab your Bibles, turn to 1 Kings chapter 9. 1 Kings chapter 9, as we are slowly working our way through the story of Solomon. There's only, uh, his story ends in chapter 11. His son takes over in chapter 12, uh, around there. But chapter 9, and uh, we, we are done with the construction and the consecration of the temple. And now we see what follows after that. Page 311 of your pew Bibles, as always, uh, we uh, invite you to take that home if you do not have a Bible. With that, if you will, stand with me at a reverence for God's Word. We want to start in verse 1. The writer of 1 Kings writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord in the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever. As I promised David, your father, saying, You shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, but if you turn aside from following me, you and your, or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. The house that I have consecrated for my name I will cast out of my sight, and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Everyone passing by will be astonished and will hiss, and they will say, Why has the Lord done thus to this land and to this house? Then they will say, Because they abandoned the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold of, of, on other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. By the end of twenty years in which Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house, and Hiram, king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress, timber and gold, as he had desired. King Solomon gave to Hiram twenty cities in the land of Galilee. And when Hiram came from Tyre to see the cities that Solomon had given him, they did not please him. Therefore he said, What kind of cities are these that you have given me, my brother? So they called the land of Kabul to this day. Hiram had sent to the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold. This is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord in his, in his own house and the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and captured Gezer and burned it with fire and had killed the Canaanites who lived in the city and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. So Solomon rebuilt Gezer and lower Beth Haran and Baalamoth and Tamar in the wilderness in the land of Judah. And all the store cities that Solomon had, and the cities for his chariots, the cities for his horsemen, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and all the land of his dominion, all the people who were left of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, these Solomon drafted to be slaves, and they are to this day. But of the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers, they were the officials, his commanders, his captains, his chariots, commanders, and his horsemen. These were the chief officers who were over Solomon's work, 550 who had charge of the people who carried on the work. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to their own house that Solomon had built for her. Then he built the Milo. Three times a year, Solomon used to offer up burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar that he built to the Lord, making offerings with it before the Lord, so he finished the house. King Solomon built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elath on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. 
And Hiram sent with the fleet his servants, seamen who were familiar with the sea, together with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir and brought from there gold, 420 talents, and they brought it to King Solomon. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask for the same thing. And Lord, we, 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 we ask because we are weak and you are strong. Would you fill us with your word and we believe it. Lord, draw us to obedience and draw us to the nations, draw us to our city, that more may come to obey you. And Lord, as always, may I decrease so you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I'm willing to bet that if you were to go to T-ball, baseball, here in this city or anywhere else in the United States, uh, you're going to hear a bunch of dads shouting the same thing to their kids. What is it? What's the number one rule when it comes to batting in baseball? Keep your eye on the ball, right? So here's a good image of, oh wait, that's the wrong image, right? That's, that's Foghorn Leghorn. I, I came across that. If you get a chance to throw up Foghorn Leghorn, you're going to take advantage of that, aren't you, right? One of my favorite, uh, there's several of these, you've probably seen kids do this, is a dad will tell his son, eye on the ball, and he takes it a bit literally, right? The kid puts his, eventually, his eye on the ball, right there. There it is, right? That, that is, that is uh, all too common, right? All too common. A kid's kid doing that. You can't say the kid ain't listening to his dad, right? He'll get over that by the time he's a teenager. But for now, he is listening to everything his dad has to say, taking it very literally. Well, the, the, the thing is, is, is that although those are keys to success, that's a, that's a gif. That's just going to keep going and going. You can say it's cute all you want to. The thing about success is, 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 yes, you have to follow those rules, but you have to watch for areas of weakness. For example, in, in sports, you are most vulnerable in the game when you are successful. The, the, the op- opposing team will, will expose those weaknesses when you have uh, been successful. Let me give you a few examples of this. Uh, maybe you and your team went down the court in a basketball game and they threw you an alley-oop. alley-oop. You did a tomahawk jam between the legs, 360, no, 720, in front of your, your whole family and the girl you're trying to impress. Jammed it, right? And what are you going to do, particularly as a young man? Look at me. I'm the man. Look at me. I'm awesome. What is the defense going to do? They just realized three players ain't paying attention. And they were run down the field, or the court, sorry, soccer fan, run down the court and score against you. Maybe uh, you, you, you feel a little comfortable going into the fourth quarter because your lead was so great. Maybe you in soccer have dribbled past five players and scored a cracking goal, and you think, man, we're going to win this now. Maybe you just ran for 90 yards down the field, and now you've made it to first and goal, and you think, well, the hard part's over with. Now is the easy parts. Look, in sports, we are most vulnerable when we are most successful. When you're on this long winning streak, after you've won the championship, you are most vulnerable when you are most successful. Success runs the risk of exposure. The same is true when it comes to our spiritual lives. 1 Kings chapter 8 is a monumental passage in the Old Testament. I've argued all along that it is the climax of the Old Testament, the true climax of the Old Testament. 
And here Solomon has achieved everything he's really sought out to achieve. He secured peace uh, and he has extended the borders. He has built a permanent temple by which God will dwell with his people. And he has built him a nice palace. He has a wife. He has family. He has everything a king could want. And it is that moment he is most vulnerable. And the question we have as we start here in chapter 9, going all the way to the end of Solomon's story in chapter 11 is, does Solomon see that he is vulnerable? Does he fall for that vulnerability and will it destroy him? Let's start here with Solomon's choice in verses 1 to 9. Solomon's choice. Now, this is the second time God has appeared to Solomon. You, you may remember uh, in chapter 3, uh, God appeared to Solomon. You remember that he asked Solomon, if I could give you anything in the world, what would you want, right? And you remember Solomon said, give me wisdom. Here is the second appearing to, uh, of God to Solomon. And the timings aren't accident. Uh, the first was uh, following his inauguration as king. Now what we have is the successful construction and consecration of the temple and palace. And so God appears, you can see there in verses 1 and 2. And verse 3, God assures Solomon that he has heard all of his prayers and he will answer them. Remember that, that at the heart of chapter 8, we spend some time on it, is Solomon's lengthy prayer. And he's praying that God would hear those prayers. And here God says, I've heard them and I will answer them as you have asked. However, we see in verses 4 to 9, there is a catch to the, the, that, that promise. There, there is a catch to it. And what we see is that the promises of God given here in chapters 8 and 9 are conditional. Now, that may sound strange, but the truth is, uh, although we like to think that love is unconditional, and it is, God's love for us is unconditional. At the same time, most relationships that you and I have are indeed Conditional. For example, if I run a business, my relationship with my customers is conditional. If they don't pay their bills, that's a pretty serious condition. If I don't live up to my end of the bargain, whatever the business is, that's going to affect our relationship. If I am an employee and I, I fail to do my job, then my relationship with my coworkers or with my boss or the administration will be harmed as a result, right? It's not an unconditional relationship. There's certain conditions tied to it. In marriage, though we like to think of it as unconditional, as it ought to be, it in truth is a conditional, rela a conditional relationship. After all, love is selfless. Love is selfless. It is conditioned on the selfless nature of, of, of both parties, right? It becomes unconditional when both parties love with a selfless love. There is no such thing as selfish love, right? So in a marriage, if one party violates the marriage vows, then, then they have violated the conditions that holds that marriage together, right? And the Bible recognizes that sort of thing. So what we have here is God warning Solomon he says that all of these blessings that you are seeking, I give them to you on certain conditions. So remember that, that in the first appearance, God is asking Solomon to, to make a choice. What would you like for me to give you? And he made the right choice. Here, he again is asking Solomon to make the right choice. He asked him to choose two things. First, he asked him to choose loyalty. Choose loyalty. The Lord begins by calling Solomon to obey him, verses 4 and 5. And he, and he uses a, a number of phrases that all mean the same thing. You see it there in verse 5. Walk before me like your father did. Walk with integrity of heart. 
Walk with uprightness. Do all according that, that I have commanded you. And keep my statutes and rules. Those are, what is that, five different ways of saying the same thing. One who keeps the statutes and rules of God will walk uh, uh, with uprightness. They will walk with integrity, right? All of these are basically saying the same thing. It is a simple command to Solomon to obey the Lord. He has, he has built this wonderful temple, and if Solomon's not careful, he may think, I've got a nice building. God can hang out with us. Now, now I can go do whatever it is I want. And God says, no, the blessing of God, which you see in verse 5, is conditioned by your willingness to follow and to obey me. Choose loyalty. But notice also he asks him to choose love. That's in verses 6 and 7. What undergirds faithfulness, loyalty, obedience, following after the Lord is love. I want you to think of some of the things that you have done in your life you would have never have done under any circumstance except love. For a lot of men, it means you went through the wedding process. Let's not lie, right? Right? Let's be honest, right? Right? You know, but uh, it's, it's picking out cake toppers. I'll never forget picking out a cake topper. I, I, I wanted the one where the bride is dragging the groom. It was a joke. Uh, my wife is in the nursery now. She did not find that as funny as I did. Um, but, but the one that came to mind this week is in a few weeks, I have to do something I thought I would never do, never do in my life. I have to, and it's hard for me to say, I have to go watch the University of Kentucky play a game. I know you, it's scandalous, isn't it? I've, I, I, my, my little girl's playing volleyball. She, she's doing good and proud of her. Uh, but she gets free tickets to watch UK girls play volleyball. I know nothing about volleyball. You know, the way y'all feel about soccer is the way I feel about volleyball. Right? I know nothing about it. I know if you hit the ball... Um, that's, that's part of it, apparently, right? There's more to it. I just don't know what it is. But, but uh, So we're going to go watch the UK girls volleyball team play Mississippi State Bulldogs. And so my sister lives down in Mississippi. And so I said, hey, sis, you got any Bulldog stuff that you can give me? Uh, right, because I, I ain't rooting for, for no UK. I'm just going to tell you that right now. I do not love my daughter that much. That's what I'm trying to say, right? Now... Uh, that is true. I'll be wearing all the U of L stuff that, that I can. Uh, this is free. As a U of L fan, one of the things that Louisville fans like to do is every time there's a football basketball game, we like to get pictures of the random UK fan in all blue garb showing up at the games, right? It's a fun little thing U of L fans was. I'm going to be the U of L fan version of that, right? I'm going to be decked out in red. But we do the things we do out of love. Love undergirds loyalty. So God warns Solomon in verse 6 not to turn aside from following him, right? Which is what we just saw in verses 4 and 5. What he means by this, he says in verse 6, is do not go and serve other gods and worship them. Now, you and I may think that idolatry must involve graven images of stone and wood. But the truth is, you and I, even though we're not surrounded by such statues and images, we're surrounded by gods all the day long. Can I highlight five prominent idols of our secular age? I didn't make these up. They're alliterated, uh, so you know I didn't make them up. But here they are, five, secular, uh, sec five idols of our secular age. Number one, sex. Number two, self. Number three, the state. Number four, science. Number five, stuff. That is the American experience. 
That is what we want in our society. And we think, interestingly, that we control all of those. We think of our identity as it relates to intimacy. We, 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 we we're surrounded around the self that if, if you don't accept who I think that I am or what I, my own truth is, that you are not, you are out of bounds we, we, and everything else, right? These are idols. And we're surrounded by these uh, all the time. And the consequences of these idols is given in verse 7. And that is judgment. Much as we wouldn't tolerate adultery in our marriages, why do we expect God to tolerate idolatry in our worship? In fact, in the Bible, it, it equates adultery in marriage with idolatry in our spiritual journey. You read the whole book of Hosea. That's the whole point of it. Hosea is called to, to marry a harlot who violates the vows. And God says, that's exactly what Israel has done to me. They have violated our covenants. And yet, as Hosea is drawn to pursue his bride, so too God is drawn to pursue his people. But what God does here in verse 7, he says that the minute you start doing that, I will send you in captivity. I will send you into exile among the nations. Why? It sounds harsh. But God is giving the people exactly what it is that they want. You want to worship Baal or Baal? Then go live among those who worship him. You want to worship the Ashtaroths and the other idols? I will send you to those where you can worship them a little more easier. But this is my land, and here I will be worshipped. We need to understand that about idolatry. Often judgment is not fire and brimstone, though it can be that. Often, and I believe we're looking at America in this, judgment is when God gives us the very thing that we want. I've shared this, this illustration before, but when the kids were little, my wife and I had a strong disagreement over winter coats. If it was, if it was just slightly chilly outside, by chilly was anything under 80, I think, and, and, and uh, she would say, okay, kids, we, we got to get our coats on, right? And when they were old enough to sort of put their own coats on and whatnot, if they were walking out there with a jacket too light or no jacket at all, I said nothing. Why? Because I think you get what you deserve, Right? You will eventually figure out it is cold outside and that coats keep you warm. That's, the, that's my approach. Whereas my wife was much more, no, we, I, I, I shot a walrus and I was down in, in, in Alaska. Here you go, right? She's going to keep them warm. Well, God does sort of what I was doing where, he's, where he just gives us over so that thinking that we, are, that we are going to get something that we want and desire and need, we actually discover we, are, we, we have surrendered ourselves to a God who is far less. And that is the warning here. Now, what interests me about these first nine verses is that Solomon's given a choice. What is his choice? I was reading through this thinking, okay, this, is, this mirrors the first uh, appearance of God, right? You remember the story? We've already mentioned it, that God shows up and says, hey, um, I'll give you anything you want. That's the option. What is Solomon's choice? We're given Solomon's choice. He chooses wisdom. What is his choice here? We read it. We're not giving it at all, are we? God gives the conditions of his blessings, but Solomon never responds. The narrator doesn't give it to us, which means that we will measure Solomon's answer by his actions. And this is what we see in the remaining part of chapter 9 is we're going to say, okay, God is saying, look, this relationship is conditioned on you, on, on, on loyal love. Does Solomon choose loyal love? 
Our only option is to look to see what Solomon does. Actually, there's some insight there, isn't it? We can talk a big game all we want to. We can say about how spiritual we are, how awesome we are, and all that sort of stuff. But we're called to act, right? Be a doer of the word, the Apostle John will say, not just a hearer of it or a speaker of it. Let's look at his actions, right? Just a couple things to look at real briefly in verses 10 to, to 28. The first is political shrewdness. Political shrewdness. Here is his, his, his working with Tyre. Remember that Hiram, the king of Tyre, supplied him uh, a lot of the wood and other stuff, the, uh, uh, the cedar trees and everything for the temple and, and the palace. And here what we see is that in that relationship, they, they entered into a trade deal. Solomon got the better deal, right? I was uh, thinking about this the other day. Uh, in, in 1980, I remember it well. I wasn't even born yet. But 1980, in the NBA draft, right? The Boston Celtics traded two of their first round picks. They only had two. They traded both of them to the Golden State Warriors. This is what they got out of it, right? First of all, they, they got Robert Parrish and they got to choose um, a, a later pick in the draft. So they got Robert Parrish and with their pick, they got Kevin McHale. Now, those of you who know basketball in the 1980s, you got the big rivalry between the, uh, the Showtown Lakers and, and the Baston Celtics, right? You know, so in a single draft by which they surrendered what everyone thought was the better deal to the Golden State Warriors, the Celtics got two-thirds of their starting lineup for a, a team that went on to win five national champions, including the one of my birth year, 1984, when they beat the Lakers. Seven games. One of the greatest series of all time, of course. What did the Warriors get out of that deal? Well, you're going to love this. They got Joe Barry Carroll and Ricky Brown. Now, you're asking yourself, who is Joe Barry Carroll and who is Ricky Brown? That's the point. The Baston Celtics got Hall of Famers out of that. Golden State Warriors got diddly, I think is the technical term. They got nobodies. They barely had an NBA career. That's what Solomon does here with King Hiram, is that, is that he outmaneuvers. He is shrewd in his political dealing. Now, this, of course, benefits Israel. Isn't this what you want out of your business leaders, your political leaders, your, your, the, the, any sort of leader in your life? You want them to be shrewd in their dealings. Not only is Solomon shrewd because of his great wisdom, he expands the military uh, presence of Israel. Now, as hopefully you know, that security is the top priority of any government in the ancient world or the postmodern world. And while Solomon's two major uh, uh, construction projects were already completed, he continued to build throughout his administration. And one of his priorities was Israel's defenses, right? This makes sense, right? If, if you have extended your borders, you need to extend the military defense of those borders, right? That, that makes sense, and that's what he does. So in verse 15, he expands the wall of Jerusalem as well as strengthening Hazor and Megiddo. These are two very strategic cities. Uh, in verse 16, he rebuilds Gezer that... Pharaoh had destroyed. That becomes an important outpost of Israel. In verse 19, he adds to his army that of chariots and horsemen. Those are very expensive. And it gives you a strong advantage in battles. Why Egypt was always so powerful. They had chariots, as you may know. Verses 20 to 22, as a result of his strength, the Canaanites are forced to work for him instead of warring against him. He is able to subdue all of his enemies. And in verse 26 to 28, perhaps most surprising of all, 
Solomon goes out and builds a navy. Now, we take this for granted. We've relied on a navy since the very beginning. You remember the French blockade in the Revolutionary War of America that helped us win it. The Union Army did the same thing against the Confederates in the uh, war between the states. And, and right, the navy is very important. But Israel never had one. Israel never had one because they don't like water. They don't like the wilderness. They don't like the sea because they associate both with death. Solomon becomes so powerful and so rich, he builds a navy. This is absolutely incredible. But notice thirdly, religious fidelity. Religious fidelity. In the ancient world, religion and politics were often overlapped. The king's religious fidelity would be reflected in the uh, people's religious practices. And so we see in verse 25, he takes three journeys a year. These are probably referencing the three major festivals of Israel at this time. That would be Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. Remember that at the Feast of Booths, he consecrates the temple. And there he would march to the temple. He helped build and consecrate. He would offer the sacrifices, and, and as such, he would invite Israel to do the same. So here we have, right, if, if, it's really an impressive resume, isn't it? We would think, okay, look, Solomon, he's had this great climax of success. Everything is going smooth for him. And if you just look at it, at it from the surface level, we think Solomon has chosen wisely. God is blessing him and the people of Israel. I think that's the point of the passage. If you just look at things from the outside, if you just look at things the way they appear, everything looks okay. This is quite an impressive resume. But I think chapter 9 is not for us to brag about Solomon, but rather to warn us about Solomon. If you would just scratch below the surface, there are clear hints, not just here, but throughout the entire narrative thus far, that things are starting to unravel. And that's what we have to do in the remaining of what we have in the story of Solomon, is yes, look at what it is that everyone else sees, but we've also got to look at the real reality. Can we do just a real quick Bible study? Just a real quick one. I'll, I'll get you home in time for work tomorrow. Will you go back to chapter 3 for me? Chapter 3, we have purposely ignored all of these references for this very moment. Chapter 3, just go to your left a few pages. Chapter 3, verse 1. Now, chapter 3 is when Solomon prays for wisdom. This is the first appearance. But here's how it begins. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. Now notice there are three construction projects referenced in chapters 8 and 9. The walls mentioned we just saw in chapter 9. Of course, the temple in chapter 8 we spent several weeks on. But notice the, the writer, may, we think chapter 3 is all about Solomon asking for wisdom. It begins with a foolish decision. Now on the surface, this is wise. The way it works in politics, particularly ancient politics with royalty, is if I want peace with this nation, I will marry into the family. So I'll give my daughter into the king or the prince's hand, or, or I will marry the, the prince or, or the princess or whoever, right? And that's what he does here. If he wants peace with Egypt, he'll marry uh, the pharaoh's daughter. But if you keep reading throughout the narrative, as we'll see, she's always introduced as pharaoh's daughter. You see... This will become one of the major downfalls for Solomon. 
Perhaps in the name of peace and political expediency, he will surrender fidelity to the Lord. And he will give his heart to women who will take his heart and give it to false gods. It's easy for us to gloss over this as we're reading through it because it's all about chapter 3. Solomon, so wise. Wasn't that a wise decision for Solomon to ask for that? And it begins, the writer is warning you, with foolishness. A foolishness that looks innocent enough here will ruin him later. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. King Solomon drafted, this is the building, the construction of the temple. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all of Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. Now we can come back here to chapter 9, and what is it that we find there in chapter 9, verse 15? Same thing, this is the account of the forced labor that King Solomon drafted to build the house of the Lord and his own house in the Milo and the wall of Jerusalem and Hazor and Megiddo and Gezer. In fact, you can go down even farther. And what is it that, that, that you find? You find that the people that, that had been subdued were enslaved. The Perizzites, the Hittites, and all them. You see a problem with that? The Old Testament is very clear. You don't do this. You don't do this. If you're wanting to, you can go down to chapter 9, verse 24, if we can go back to the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. But Pharaoh's daughter went up from the city of David to her own house. Solomon had built her. Then he built the Milo. So we think of Solomon building uh, a temple and a palace when in reality he built a third building, a separate palace for Pharaoh's daughter that allowed her to worship any god or gods that she wanted. She never became an Israelite. She is not a convert to Israel. That was always the vision. She didn't come to the light of the nations. She brought the nations to Israel. This will become the problem for Israel. Go back to chapter 6. We'll look at just, just one more little passage here. Chapter 6, verse 38. It's the very end of chapter 6, and we'll go right into chapter 7. Chapter 6, verse 38. Again, this is something we glossed over on purpose that, and for sake of time. Chapter 6, verse 38. In the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all of its parts. And according to all of its specifications, he was seven years in building. That's referencing the temple. It took seven years to build a temple. Something poetic about that, right? Because of the number seven. Go to the very next verse. Now remember, I think the writer wants us to see this. This isn't just details in a footnote. The writer wants to see this. So we say, the temple's done seven years. Man, they really, really worked hard on that. This is a state job. It's like, like every time a state builds something, it takes a little extra time. This temple took a lot of time to build it. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Solomon was building his own house 13 years. You, you see that? Just by looking at that, which one do you think was the greater priority? Which one do you think reflected the great wealth of the nation? The temple? Solomon's great temple that people in the day of Haggai and Zerubbabel marveled. We'll never have anything like that. Or the palace that took 14 years, 13 years. And so he finished an old house. And remember, while he is doing that, if you go down to chapter 7, verse 8, his own house where he was to dwell and the other court back to the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken in marriage. 
two palaces, but one house for Israel's God. Are you seeing it? Are you seeing that, yes, on the surface, everything looks okay? If you're on the outside looking in, you're going to say, everything is all right. We'll meet Queen Sheba in, in, in chapter 10, and she's going to come and say, everything looks okay. I'm going to marvel at all Solomon has done, but what we are seeing is warning signs. Warning, warning, warning. Something isn't right. He's made small compromises that are going to lead to his fall. Solomon started well, but he doesn't finish well. That's the point, I think, of chapter 9. Is, is it is preparing the reader for what we know is about to happen. Therefore, it's a warning to the reader. For us to look at our own lives, what warning signs are there? If you were to travel through my hometown and, 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 and you get on 127, go north, or you're up northern Kentucky, come to Frankfurt, go south right on 127, and you follow GPS, you should be able to get anywhere you, you want to go unless, for a time, you were a trucker. There was a problem. The problem was that there was construction being done uh, in downtown Oynton. Downtown Oynton. It's all downtown, I guess. But, but if you go, there was construction there, which meant trucks couldn't get through 127 through Oynton. But you got to come through here. So where are you going to take the trucks? I've got an idea for you. Take Highway 845. Now, you may not know where Highway 845 is. But can I show you? Uh, a little bit about Highway 845. If you're ever near Long Ridge Baptist Church, you're near, uh, in fact, let me brag about this. There's a Dollar General right there. At 845 meets 127. You ought to go there. It's like every Dollar General you've ever been to. It's great, right? My, my in-laws, this is free. This is not, this, you got time, right? You're not, you're not doing anything else. You're resting today. My in-laws to this day cannot remember there's a Dollar General so close to them. It's a five-minute drive. So they'll say, oh, we got to get milk. It's a 15-minute drive, 20-minute drive to Ointon, unless we want to go Dry Ridge. And we'll say, five minutes up the road is a Dollar General. What? There's a Dollar General five minutes up. Oh, I forgot. The one in Long Ridge? The one in Long Ridge. Been there a few years now. What were we talking about? Yeah, so the problem with 845 is that it wasn't built for trucks. Can I show you one part of it from Google Earth? Here it is. Now, that's a little curvy. Can I show you what it looks like when you're actually on the road, again, from Google Earth? That guardrail is recent. Growing up, there was no guardrail. When you went down 845 heading to my home church, Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church, so if I was dating my girl, right, and I'd go from, from, from Sparta Ridge and I'd turn left 845 to get to church because I'm running late and don't want to get in trouble from mom and dad, I'd take 845. And I knew this was coming up. And I knew there wasn't a guardrail. And I knew if I'd made a wrong turn, I, I, am, I am going down to my death. But even with the guardrail, you truckers, you want this road right here? No. The problem is, is that GPS was telling truckers, this is exactly where you need to go. If you can't go through 127, 845 is a shortcut. So what the city had to do, or the county had to do after having to pull several trucks out near this loop here, is they had to put up a sign. You may not be able to see it. Again, this is from Google Earth. It says, sharp turns on Kentucky 845. Trucks use alternative routes. GPS routing not advised. Still, trucks ignored it. 
Still, they were having to pull people off the highway. The point of a sign is to warn you of what is to come. Is to have you to look at the road that you are going down. Is it the right road? Is it the safe road? Is it the best road? Warning, 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 danger ahead. See, to the trucker, he's got his GPS. Everything looks just fine. It tells me I can go this way. What is there to worry about? To ignore the signs will lead to our destruction. The same is true with your spiritual life. I want you right now, as we go into this time of invitation, I want you to look at your own life. I ask you that that maybe from the surface, maybe to everyone else here, the way it looks, everything's okay. I'm spiritual. I'm faithful. I'm active. I'm a good Christian boy or girl. But if we were to scratch below the surface, what would we find? Would there be signs? Where there be warnings, let it be today. Today, you make the choice that Solomon did not. And that is to choose loyal love at whatever cost. So in the time of invitation, as you come forward, I want you to lay your sins at the, before the throne of God. To surrender all that you have been, all that you've been struggling with, all of your temptations, all of your hardships, give them over to the Lord. Surrender your hearts to Jesus. Maybe you're here and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus, never been saved. I'm going to ask again, you come and give your life to Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to help us.